Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Today is a, uh, a special sort of uh, show we're doing. We did a show Wednesday night with uh, Tommy Dades and Joe Pistone, a.k.a. Donnie Brasco. And we got so into talking about Joe Pistone and about all of his life and stuff that we didn't get a chance really to dig deep into the Mafia Cops case, which was sort of memorialized in a book called Friends of the Family and by Tommy Dades and um, Michael Vecchioni. So we want to dig a little deeper into that today. But before I do that, I just want to thank everyone. This channel is getting we're blowing up because of you guys. We're really we're getting uh, new people that want to be members of the Police Off the Cuff family. We're getting unbelievable guests, basically because of our reputation and because of some of the great guests we've already had on. And I want to take this right to the top, you know, and I don't not be conceited, but I work hard. When I when I see the prize, I'm going to work as hard as possible. I'm going to bring the best guests, the best co-hosts, and this show is going to be unbelievable, you know, and it's going to be entertaining and fun and we'll never, ever, ever lose our sense of humor. Some of you guys don't like the little banter that we have in the beginning, but guess what? Too bad. We're going to have banter because that's what this show is all about. That's what cops do when they get together. We tell war stories. We joke. We bust each other's chops. And that will never let that go. That's always going to be a big part of this show. So, folks, if you want to join our channel, I know you can click below and you can become a member of the Police Off the Cuff family. I think there's four tiers now. The Bucket, uh, Polish My Rack, uh, Dipped in Butter, and a new one that I'm, it's the most expensive one, but hey, heated butter costs a lot of money. So if you want to be heated in butter, that's the premier tier of the Police Off the Cuff family. And you can also, if you're not a subscriber on YouTube, please subscribe, give us a thumbs up, and hit that bell. You're not going to be sorry. This, this show is going to grow. We're getting a lot of um, organized crime folks that want to come on the show. And we're okay with that. And, you know, sometimes we'll get criticism from that to, oh, you guys are glorifying mobsters. You know what I did when I was a cop? I interviewed murderers. So how is that any different? Now I'm interviewing them on YouTube. And Phil did the same thing. And Joe Murray, now he's representing them, you know, because he's an attorney now. So, you know, something you can criticize us. But, you know, something we're going to have fun and we're going to do what we think is good, right? And when we think something isn't right, we won't. We obviously won't do it. So enough said. Enough introduction. Let me introduce Ladies and gentlemen, the principals we have from straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How you doing today, Phil? Pretty good, Bill. Thank you so much. I saw the podcast yesterday. Those were such kind words you said about me, and I can't thank you enough. And coming from somebody like you with a great reputation and being amongst uh, Joe, you, Tommy Dage, Joe Pistone, these are, are greats in law enforcement and... Uh, being in that category, I can't thank you enough. What you said, I swear, I mean it, Bill. It was almost like an Academy Award for me to, to be. Uh, no, I mean it. I mean it. I mean it from the heart. You said some really nice things about me. And uh, just, you know, it's like in law enforcement, we never really pat each other on the back. And, and I just wanted to say I really appreciate it. The show is, is doing fantastic. And uh, I'll, I'll say a couple more words after you introduce the man upstairs above me. <laughs> you know something? Joe Murray started coming on here and there as a guest here. And, and you know something, he, he's such a likable guy that the audience members love this guy. And he's so sincere that, you know, people see that sincereness and they, and they like it. And, and he's an attorney and people usually hate attorneys. 
but they they love Joe on the show. So I'm like, what am I stupid? Let me bring him on. So Joe Murray, retired police officer, NYPD, current uh, defense attorney. Joe, welcome to the show. Bill, thanks so much. And and uh, I really love being on the show. I can't believe the growth that you've had. Actually, I can believe it because I spotted it right away. I knew this was going to be a, a huge success. But I love that you're maintaining your integrity. You're keeping to your you know, your true values, uh, you and Phil. I, I just It's such an honor to work with both of you. And I'm happy to be here and contribute in any way I can. Well, that's great. And I appreciate you guys. You know, we're getting some... Um, but, you know, when you do a show like this, one of the greatest things about doing it, besides actually doing it, is the great people that you get to meet. You know, 100%, and, uh, 100%. you know, Tommy Dades, I never, I've never ever met Tommy Dades face to face, but I've met him like three or four times doing the show. And I, and we're like buddies. And I know when I meet him, we're going to hit it off because I already know him, even though I haven't met him in person. Phil Grimaldi, I knew him from, we did a TV show together years ago. And, uh, and, and and Joe Murray also met from The Perfect Murder, that uh, TV show on Investigation Discovery. But besides that, you know, we do also some shows on police off the cuff that I call also giving back to the community. And last uh, week on Monday and Tuesday, we did two shows in regards to the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. And both of them I felt were very touching. And that's, to me, giving back to the community and let the community know what police officers do every day what first responders do every day and how they sacrifice things and they give back and they do things very selflessly. And Thursday, we also did another show about a, a, a group up in Putnam County that is uh, helping cops with suicide and PTSD and that type of thing. So we're always going to do those shows, even though those shows don't draw the biggest audience, but that's called giving back too. you know, we got to give back to the community. And, and do those shows also. So without any further ado, let's get into what the topic is today. And I held well, up. Can I just book. say, could I just say one thing yeah, before you get into the topic? I just want the direction of the show that we uh, are doing the police off the cuff, um, the real crime stories, uh, the direction we're going in now, we, uh, we brought on Joe Pistone, we had Tommy Dades and you know, there's, uh, there's, real crime stories that involve organized crime. And it happens to be very popular in the YouTube community and the podcasts. Uh, you know, if you look at a guy like Sammy the Bull that we're probably going to be booking tomorrow to come on real soon. I mean, he's got thousands of followers, hundreds of thousands of views. So it's very popular. And we're not condoning any behavior by him or anybody else that was involved in organized crime. We're hoping to get Jimmy Calandria on that. Uh, Tommy Dades is actually doing his show today at 4 p.m. They're going to be going live. Uh, it's Jimmy Calandria, uh, Bath Avenue story. He's a, a guy that was on the other side of the fence. He was involved in organized crime and he was arrested by Tommy and they actually are uh, friends now and he's going to be doing a show. So the point is that we didn't make the deal with these guys. It was the government that made the deal. And it's it's really part, it was a necessary evil to, to get things done, to investigate organized crime. There's not a lot of Joe Pistones out there. There's not a lot of Donnie Brascos. So what he did in six years could never be duplicated. So they, they need to have informants. They need to have people that work with uh, law enforcement. And unfortunately, uh, sometimes people that do very bad things are given some light sentences. But uh, listen, if you, I believe in redemption. If you turn your life around and you can do something positive, then so be it, you know? So again, we're not condoning it. And, um, you know, I think it's just 
it's our instincts to talk about things and, and dissect things and take things apart. And it gives a great, uh, you know, perspective from the law enforcement side. We're going to have the other side and it's a great conversation. I think uh, everybody's going to enjoy it. I'm sure that, uh, you know, there might be some people that are, that are disheartened with it and you can change the channel. You don't have to watch, but uh, I think it's going to be very, very interesting stuff. I mean, the, the people from the UK that, that have been coming on, they're really uh, very interested in anything organized crime. And, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn. I was around organized crime as a kid. I mean, I wasn't part of it, but it was all around me. And I went into law enforcement. Tommy Dade's uh, same thing. He came from a rough and tumble neighborhood. And, uh, you know, there's a lot. You know, he's got a couple of books. He's got the, the Friends of the Family. He's got this other book, Mob Over Miami. We'll probably talk about that in, in uh, one of the future shows. I mean, that's a really, really intricate story. So uh, just wanted to put that out there. Again, we hope to have these people on. And, uh, you know, for the viewers and the listeners, it's going to be interesting stuff. And uh, I know I'm going to be glued to it and I'm going to be very plugged in. So, uh, all right, Bill, let's move on. You know, and talk you, know, about- you know, Phil, I hope we can all go to the UK together because we won't pay for a single pint. That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> That's really the truth. That's what they do over there. You know, Joe, Joe's been over to the UK, UK to fight the Bobbies back in the yes. day when he was a boxer, right? Nice. Yeah, a lot of fun. Great, great times. Matter of fact, sadly, the coach of the boxing team in London passed away a couple of years ago. And Lee Pactor and I flew over um, uh, with our full uniforms and and his family invited us to be pallbearers, at, at, which I thought was the greatest honor. So we, we came in uniform and uh, we were Paul Bears at his funeral. It was just uh, an amazing thing, you know, uh, to show the love and support that they have had to, for us all this time and then to pay it back, you know. So uh, the relationship Fantastic. is wonderful. They're great people. And the guy that I fought, my nemesis over there, who I lost, I think I lost twice, twice or maybe three times to this guy, is now the coach of the team. He's he's the new coach taking over. So you team. should go over there and kick his ass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta have a, an old timers day, you know. And uh, yeah, he beat, beat you three times. <laughs> Give a mean man from Derry Island. There was yeah. music there in the Derry air, yeah, like a language. Right. <laughs> Listen, That's if from... we go over, we take Tommy Dades and Joe with us. We won't have any problems. That's we'll right. To, we won't have any problems. We have we have our ba- we have our bouncers with us. You know. Yeah. yeah. I just yeah. wanna. We're gonna get on to this to the book of Friends of the Family. In regards to the case of uh, cops known as known as mafia cops, uh, Louis Louis Ippolito and Steve Caracappa. and I'm just going to read the very first page of this book, and it's it's entitled "Death of a Capo." As Eddie Lino turned his head, Caracappa pulled out his gun, extended his arm, aimed directly at the back of his skull, and pulled the trigger. Boom, boom, boom! Traffic racing home on the Belt Parkway more than smothered the sound. Caracappa kept firing into Lino's body. Boom, boom. Nine times. Lino bled out all over the new leather seats. His foot slipped off the brake, and a car rolled forward, dead man driving until it crashed into a fence. Caracappa put the gun back in his pocket, and the two New York City police detectives walked casually back to their car. Just another night in the life of two of the dirtiest cops in NYPD history. Wow, that's really riveting. Um, I worked in the 6-0 squad when that went down. That happened in the confines of Coney Island of the 6-0 squad. Uh, I didn't respond to the actual murder. I responded afterwards uh, the next day. But uh, what you described, what happened was um, they were on the payroll of 
um, Anthony Gas Pipe Queso. And what I mean by that is he was giving them a stipend every month to do all these uh, different criminal activities. And uh, that particular thing was they went after uh, Eddie Lino uh, to uh, to take him out. And what they did was they were they were supplied with an, uh, a car that looked like an undercover police car. And they put a red light in it and they followed him from a social club on Avenue U in my old neighborhood. And when he went to make the left turn to get onto the Bell Parkway by Shell Road, they put the light on and they pulled him over. So he must have thought it was a routine car stop, uh, you know, maybe the feds breaking his chops or breaking his balls about something. So he pulled over casually. And when they walked over to the car, I don't think there was much conversation. And uh, Caracappa just started blasting him. And the car actually went veered to the left and went up onto the, uh, uh, I guess it's like the, uh, the side of the Bell Parkway, there's a name for it, the, uh, the side of the road there. And uh, it, it went through the fence and it stopped. And, uh, you know, they, they went into the back into the car and they took off. And the the next car that drove up, the witness stopped, saw that they would look like what, what looked like an accident and described a, uh, a car that sped away and went onto the highway. Um, and they described it as what looked like a detective car. So there was a little suspicion about that right from the beginning. And then a few years later, um, when Anthony Gaspipe Queso became uh, an informant, he, he tried to make a deal with the feds. The story came out, and it was leaked into the newspaper. And at the time, we all thought it was it was probably a few years after the murder. Are you insane? These guys are, are killing. And, and I knew Impolito. Uh, he, I worked in the 6-0 squad. He worked in, a, in the neighboring precinct, the 6-2 squad. And we would run into him on different cases and stuff. And when they, we had the Brooklyn South detective operations in our office. So they would have to, once a week, they'd have to bring over their homicide stats and stuff like that. So we would see him. We'd go out to breakfast. He was he was a colorful guy, to say the least. He was very funny, always cracking jokes and stuff. But uh we didn't know he was actually a, a contract killer, you know. So when the Fed started to look into it, um, and like I said, they Phil, uh, the uh, Phil on the on the screen is a book that uh, Louis Ippolito wrote about himself. Yes, uh, the story of an honest cop whose family was the mob. But we all know he was not an honest cop. But even when you read this book, he was like extolling the virtues of wise guys. And dude, yes. you're a detective. You know? Are you kidding me? You're saying there's honor in being, you know, like, dude, come on. You, you know, well, you, oh, Joe, you got a comment on this. You're an attorney. Yeah, I, I, I think that? that was a big red flag. And I, I, you know, part of what happened ultimately with the lawsuits is that I think, you know, from listening to Tommy, that the department should have known better and should have fired them a long time ago. And because they didn't, it allowed them to to perpetrate these criminal acts and murders. So, but this is one of the red flags, you know, like when a guy is, is acting that way. And I'm sure he, I don't know when he wrote the book, but I'm sure this is the way that he conducted himself. That should have been a red flag, you know, that he's glorifying this life. Well, you know, when you come on the job, you get investigated and you would have think that intelligence division would have said, Hey, he's, his uncle's a made guy, his whole family are associates. And, maybe prevent you from coming on the job, you know, cause, and you may say, well, that's not fair. He's not, yeah, he's not, but look what happened. You know, he had all of these mob connections and sure enough, when he had the chance, he turned to the bad side instead of the good side. Well, Bill, that's actually how he got introduced to 
uh, Anthony Gas by Queso. They never really, they may have met face to face only one time after the, the uh, relationship was already going. There was a, a cousin of his that was involved in organized crime, a made guy, and he was friends with a guy by the name of Bert Kaplan, who turned out to be very, very instrumental in the whole house of cards falling in on Impolito and Caracappa. But um, so just what you said was true. There was the connection from a family member that went to Burton Kaplan. And there was actually an IAD, Internal Affairs Investigation, on Impolito years before they did any of these heinous crimes where um, he was accused. His fingerprint was found on a file that was found in an organized crime guy's house on a search warrant. And they linked it to him. And he went to the trial room and he beat the case. Uh, yeah, there he is with uh, with his partner, Kara uh, Kappa. That's Impolito on the right and Kara uh, Kappa on the left. Uh, Louis Impolito and Kara uh, uh, Kappa. And I think that was when they worked together in the uh, in the robbery squad. Um, they only had a, a short stint together as partners. And uh, when the, when the um, when the actual murders and stuff went down, I believe at some time they were actually one of them. I believe Impolito was retired when the uh, when the Lino murder might have went down. But, uh, yeah, so they 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 had. Uh, they had that introduction through uh, the cousin, and then they started to do stuff. And uh, that guy, Burton Kaplan, was actually instrumental in, in the whole thing falling apart. And, and Tommy touched on it, and we'll, I guess I'll, I'll uh, talk about that in the, uh, in, in, you know, in, in further on into the show. Sure, folks. Uh, Sheila, I put her on the screen. She's a new member of the um, Police Off the Cuff YouTube family. And as I said earlier, we have uh, four tiers: the bucket, uh, polish my rack. And someone said, you know, they thought Polish My Rack had something to do with guns. No, it has nothing to do with guns. When we get medals on the police department, it's called your rack. And if the more, you know, the more medals you get, the higher your rack is. So I used to say when my detectives would break my balls, I would say, go get some gun oil and a gun cloth and go polish my rack. It was sort right. of like a it was sort of like a put down, you know. But it was all in good humor. But that's where that came from. Polish my rack. It's nothing dirty about it, nothing to do with guns. And the next tier, of course, is dipped in butter, which has become our famous uh, saying. We're going to have it on our on our coffee mugs and our merchandise when it comes out. There it is, dipped in butter. You're right. There it is. And, and the highest level, we thought, you know, if dipped in butter was so popular, what could even be better? Heated dipped in butter. So that's the highest uh, level of, of our memberships. Nothing anyway, like warm butter. That's right. Nothing Just like warm butter. butter, exactly, to make you feel good on a, on a cold, rainy day. Anyway, yeah. getting back to this this story. I mean, no, can I just talk what? about the, I want to talk about the poster behind me since you're talking about the rack and stuff. I want to explain sure, to people, the poster behind me says NYPD detectives, the greatest detectives in the world, serving the people 24 hours a day. That is uh, the union that I belong to as a detective. Any detective in the NYPD is part of the union. And DEA, I don't want people to think that I work for the Drug Enforcement Agency. They're a great agency. They actually were very instrumental in keeping the case alive with the mafia cops. Um, but that stands for Detectives Endowment Association. So I just wanted to make that clear that people understand that it's just a member of the, uh, I mean, it's just a uh, the union that all detectives are members of uh, in the NYPD. I'm going to just put up a little um, video here. We'll share the screen for a second. And this is um, Gas Pipe Casso being interviewed by uh, 60 Minutes. And I, I hope I don't get hit with a, uh, a copyright infringement here. But uh, I think that this was news, and we'll put it out there. Oh, what you are. 
They go all out for you. Like go to restaurants, you don't wait online. They'll get you a table right away. You'll get the best of foods, the best of wines. So why did these people treat you that way? Because they knew I was, I was uh, with organized crime. They knew I was a mafia member. And as a mafia member, Casso was an unusually menacing figure, a reputation for being hot-tempered and sadistic. Take the case of Jimmy Heidel, a rival mobster who was tapped to kill Casso. Heidel botched the job, only wounding him. And then Casso hunted Heidel down. Took him to a place that I had prearranged, somebody's house that I could use. I brought him in there, sat him down. I wanted to know why I was shot and who told you and who else was involved and who, you know, and who, who told you, who gave you the orders to shoot me. After you were finished with it, you killed him. Was just one shot to the head? No, I didn't shoot him in that. I didn't shoot him <laughs> in somebody's house. You make a mess. I shot him a couple of times. I, I didn't. I didn't torture the kid. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything like that. I shot him a couple of times. The kid died. Well, what's a couple? Uh, uh, more than a couple. It's a couple. I, I, uh, really, I don't know the exact amount. Maybe I shot him uh, ten times, twelve times. Maybe 15, even. It could have been 15. Why? That's the that? hatred I had for him. I wanted to beat him with the gun after it was empty. He just tried to kill me. He doesn't deserve anything. That's the law anyway. That was your law? That's the law of the, of, there's the, law of the mafia. Casso learned so the law of the mafia as a young boy. He was groomed by his late father, Michael, a mob enforcer in the 1930s and 40s. Since I was eight, nine years old, I grew up in this atmosphere, and they used to always, you know, they wanted to dress me like a little gangster, put a suit on me, a hat, go against the wall, put you, put one hand in your pocket, you know, things like that, you know. As a teenager, Casso worked as a longshoreman on the docks in Brooklyn, the right place to be, he says, if you were a thief. If I needed a few dollars extra that day, I would just take something, put it on a truck, sell it to the truck driver, and that would be it. So if you were unloading the ship, isn't there somebody there watching what you're doing? Yeah, but they're all doing the same thing I'm doing. <laughs> doing the same thing. Did it ever occur to you to try to earn a, a legitimate living, to have a nine-to-five job? I did have a nine-to-five job, and I was still a thief. And I was a good thief. With exceptional talents as a hitman and a moneymaker, Casso quickly rose to the top of the Lucchese family. In 1990, with law enforcement closing in on him, Casso became a fugitive, which landed him a spot on the FBI's wanted list. After a nationwide manhunt, Casso was finally captured in 1993. He's really, really within a world of criminals that are bad people, that are killers, who are, who are just treacherous, deceitful people, he stands out. Valerie Caproni was the assistant U.S. attorney in charge of Casso's case. She says Casso knows no limits. He was involved in a conspiracy to murder a federal judge. He was involved in a conspiracy to murder a federal prosecutor. He murdered and authorized the murder of witnesses. I mean, these sorts of crimes are beyond the pale. Casso ended up pleading guilty to more than 100 crimes. And in hopes of getting out of jail one day, he, like several other high-ranking mobsters before him, turned on his mafia family and became a government informant. Good afternoon. Amazing, right? 
total sociopath, as you can see. I mean, uh, he almost brags about putting 12 bullets in, uh, in Jimmy Heidel. I mean, it's the guy did try to kill him, but, uh, yeah, that's yeah. a whole, uh, that's a whole interesting, uh, saga in the, uh, in the mafia cops, uh, book. Um, you know, Tommy Dade's touched on something. He brought up Betty Heidel. Betty Heidel was Jimmy Heidel's mother and he really didn't get into the exactness of, uh, her involvement in the case, but she had, uh, you know, contacted law enforcement because uh, Impolito and Caracappa actually went to her house and told her they were looking for the son. And, uh, you know, they uh, wanted to talk to him about a car accident and they made up some story and, you know, he wasn't there. And then they went and they found him and they, they actually handcuffed him and put him in the back of a detective car over in Brooklyn. I think he was by the handball courts over by the VA hospital on 14th Avenue and uh, they took him and they delivered him to Anthony Gaspipe Queso, uh, where he didn't talk about how he tortured him. But if you read the book, he quite uh, he viciously tortured him. I mean, he shot him in both kneecaps and different things like that. And he was trying to get the information from him who, because uh, Jimmy Heidel was part of a hit team that was sent to kill Gaspipe, and uh, he saw them and he ducked down in the car. And I think he did get hit a couple of times, but he managed to crawl out of the car. He ran across into a restaurant. And he got into the basement of the restaurant. They took off without finishing the job. And then he recognized, I believe he recognized Jimmy Heidel or no, I'm sorry. Uh, there was uh, one of the guys that was on the hit team uh, spoke about it in front of his girlfriend and the girlfriend's brother found out and went and gave it to gas pipe. And, uh, uh the, the details of how they found out how gas pipe found out are in the book. But, uh, anyway, he took him, he tortured him and, uh, he actually told gas pipe to let his body be found that there was a hundred thousand dollar life insurance policy on him. And, uh, he buried him to, you know, to stop that, I guess. And, uh, it took the, the mother quite a number of, uh, years to actually collect on that. And, uh, you know, she uh, she stayed in touch with Tommy Dades over the years and, uh, you know, she became uh, important to the case. And uh, she actually was one of the only families that didn't join in that lawsuit that you were talking about, Joe, where the uh, I think it was Judge Glasser uh, awarded uh, I think it was five million dollars a family for uh, several of the victims from the mob cops. And, and the the whole premise behind the case was is what you said, that they maybe should have been at least Louie should have been fired off the job. Uh, before they were allowed to carry on, and, and you know, Caracappa had run the uh, run the name of different people and stuff like that on his computer. He worked in a very sensitive unit. He was in the major case squad, and they had a uh, uh, you know a different. Uh, they had a specific area that they you know they monitored organized crime and stuff. So, I mean, he was in a very very uh, sensitive uh, uh, part of the NYPD and, and, you know, he was uh, allowed to access that information and uh, it actually helped them in their, uh, in their, you know, their criminal uh, doings. Joshua, thank you so much for the $5 super chat and we're getting people joining the uh, police off the cuff family. Stace on the case. Thank you so much for joining. Life is short. Thank you so much for becoming a member. Patience is the virtue. Thank you. All you guys, we so appreciate you joining the police off the cuff family. Uh, Joe, did I interrupt you? I think you were about to say something. I, I am. And you guys are veteran law enforcement officers. And, uh, you know, the work that I do as an attorney, I get people at all stages, you know, very young, first timers. Then I get people mid-career and some people who are just lifelong criminals. That's what they do. 
when I looked at that interview and hearing about his father who was an enforcer and how his father groomed him and do you think had it not been for his father's influence was this guy just predetermined to be a you know a thug and a sociopath or do you think that played a big role in in how he ended up well, you know, Joe, he was, uh, they act in the book, uh, Friends of the Family, said that he was actually implicated in 36 murders. He was only indicted for 15, but they said he took part in 36 murders. So when you talk Are you about- talking about Castle, Bill? You're saying- Yes, yeah, so I'm talking, no, I'm talking okay. about Castle. Yeah, he was yeah. He was implicated in 36 murders and they indicted him for 15. So yeah, he's a sociopath. He's a serial killer. He's all those great things. And just a footnote, he died this year of COVID. He, he died. Oh, yeah, he died not long ago. And I just want to bring out a point. And I'm not trying to condone criminal behavior, murders, or anything like that. But you know, when you talk about organized crime and you talk about La Cosa Nostra, they actually had rules and they had boundaries that they lived by. Now they broke the rules at all, all you know, everywhere, every twist and turn, they were breaking the rules. Like one rule specific, you couldn't sleep with another mobster's girlfriend or wife. And they they did things like that. The thing is if it was if it was discovered and it was brought to uh the attention of the higher ups, they would have you know, they'd have a ruling body and they'd say either the guy gets it or he does this or that to pay the fine. So it was like I'm trying to make a parallel how you know, we didn't kill people, but we had rules. The military has rules. The Locosa Nostra has rules. So I think a guy like Anthony Caspipe Queso believed in Locosa Nostra. And he, and he, you know, he said, that guy tried to kill me. He shot me. I didn't die. So he had to die. That was, that's part of their rules. If, if you hit a made guy, it's a death sentence. It's a, it's a, it's a death offense that they, they actually have. Uh, a, a ruling body that'll say, you know, if you deal drugs and you're caught dealing drugs, it's a death, it's a death uh, sentence. You know, that's that's the penalty for that. Or if you, you know, if you kill, you know, you try to kill, it's an unauthorized hit, and you try to kill a guy and you don't do it, they kill you. You know, so not trying to make parallels to the NYPD or any law enforcement agency, but I think yeah, he could have been predisposed to be a sociopath, but he really, in his heart, believed in La Cosa Nostra. And I think if you look at Sammy the Bull's podcast, the same thing. They believed in the life. They believe in that life. They have a set of rules, and they know. Like, I mean, could you think about this? And I heard a story like this, and there's been many stories. A guy who's not a made guy, but is in the life and is around all of these guys, and he pisses off a boss, and a boss or or or, or just a made guy start slapping him around. Could you imagine Bill or Joe that somebody slaps you or hits you and you don't, you you just, you cannot hit them back. Think about that. I mean, my instinct, Well, you know, that's what, that's what, that's what Joe Pistone told us. He said yeah. he was talking about, he got in like five or six fights in his six years. And he, he told me he won every one of them, but he got slapped around a couple of times and he couldn't hit back. Like what you're talking about. When a made guy slapped dude. him, he couldn't hit the guy back. And so, yeah, that's crazy, right? It takes mm -hmm. a lot of it uh, takes a lot of uh, you know inner strength. I mean, it's a reaction. Some like when I was on the job and somebody took a swing and you know we were all over the guy and in the street too. As a kid growing yeah. up, somebody punched you. You you didn't say you know okay and you stood back. You you obviously and Joe, you're a fighter, so your mm -hmm. instinct. Somebody takes a swing at you, but in that life, and I know uh, um, Jimmy Calandra. The reason he became an informant 
was because they killed his best friend. And the best friend was killed because he had struck a, a maid guy and he was actually saved one time. And then the next time he insulted, uh, a, you know, a captain, a boss of the family. And then, you know, his death sentence was, uh, was given out. But, uh, think about that, Joe. I mean, you have any comment on that being a fighter? How could you, doesn't it take a lot of strength not to hit somebody back if they take a swing at you yeah i mean i can tell you when i was you know i grew up in howard beach and i worked out in uh, kennedy airport in the cargo section and you know uh, there was a lot of that nonsense going on over there i had no part in it didn't play any role in it but uh i remember there was one incident um i was at northwest orient picking up a, a, a trailer load of uh, cargo and there was a guy in there who I didn't know who he was, and he's ranting and raving. And anyone that had to track the trail, we call them warehouse transfers. So we would go first because we had the bigger, you know, loads. <clears throat> so I, I'm the next in line to get my warehouse transfer. And this guy's ranting and fuck these warehouse transfers, whatever. And, you know, I was 18 at the time, and I was just, you know, a young, you know, tough guy thinking, you know, who the hell is this guy? Everybody I knew that was on that line turned around to me. No, like, no, no, no. You know, because they <laughs> saw clear. I was like, who the hell is this guy? No, no. And it ended up being Frankie Burke, Jimmy Burke's son. Oh, so, uh, you know, I, it's it's something that uh, would be hard for me, especially as an 18-year-old kid, to resist that. But Joe, just, just to let the audience know, Joe, just to let the audience know, Frankie Burke, Jimmy Burke's son, from the Lufthansa heist. Yeah. And Jimmy Burke was a stone cold killer, even yep. though he wasn't a made guy because he was Irish, but he was a stone cold killer. And that was in the movie Goodfellas. That was sort of the uh, the theme going throughout the movie. All the guys getting whacked over not doing the right thing after the Lufthansa heist. They were told, don't spend any money. Guys are buying Cadillacs, furs, you know. <laughs> I have a great Frankie Burke story that I got to tell. It'll take two minutes. I'm I'm like 19 years old. I was dating a girl out in Ozone Park. And so I go by a house one summer night and uh, she says, come on, let's go down the block. My cousin lives down the block and a couple of her friends are over there. So we, you know, I go down the block and, you know, we're hanging out on the stoop BS and, and uh, these two guys pull up in a car and they look like regular guys. And it turned out it was Frankie Burke and Andrew Coro. And they were two real tough guy, mad dog. So long story short, um, you know, oh, you're from Brooklyn, this and that. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden, uh, you know, we're talking, I'm sitting on the uh, porch with the girls and, and they were like standing on the sidewalk. A car turns the corner and these two guys immediately both pull out 45s, duck behind the car. Like, this is it. This is it. And I grabbed the girls and I like pulled them down towards the basement the car goes by and they're like, oh, no, that wasn't them. And they put the guns away. So now I'm like, you know, I'm 19 years old. I'm looking to get on the police force and I'm saying, oh, my God, who the hell am I hanging out with? You know, so now the kid goes, yeah, come on, we got to get out of here. Uh, Andrew Coro. And I think one of them, he was on trial for shooting his girlfriend and he had no license and he couldn't drive. And they go, you got to drive his license. I'm like, yeah, why? They were like, well, maybe you could drive. A, he, he can't drive the car back. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm be in the middle of this. These two crazy guys. So I drive the one guy home and I drove the car back. And uh, so I leave, you know, whatever. We hung out till 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. I leave. I go to get on the Bell Parkway, go back to Brooklyn. And an unmarked car pulls me over. License, registration, all of that. I'm like, what did I do? They go, 
you were hanging out with the wrong people. I'm like, what? They look at my license. They see I'm from Brooklyn. They were like, do you know who those guys were? I'm like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. They go, stay in Brooklyn. They threw my shit back at me and I took off. And, you know, I, I still dated the girl, but I didn't go hanging out with those. Uh, and that, and that's the, the beginning story, how Phil Grimaldi came straight from out of Brooklyn. Frankie was killed on Rockaway Boulevard. He was shot. Yes, and yes, he was killed. After that. I think I think Andrew was was also killed. I think they were both killed because he he had shot his girlfriend Coro, and I forgot what happened uh, with the trial or whatever. I think he went to jail, but I they're both dead. I'm pretty sure. But no, guys, we're just, we're just going to go to a quick uh, commercial break, and we'll come right back with. Uh, Friends of the family, we're talking about the story of the two mafia cops, uh, Louis Ippolito and Steve Caracappa, and all the good mob stuff it brings in this story. We'll be right back. Phil, you can do the first one here. Are you tired of the same old surroundings, looking to relocate, or are you just in need of a good real, real estate agent in the Myrtle Beach, South Carolina area? Well, Carol Waters is your girl. Her and her husband, Rob Mahan, who's a retired member of the NYPD and the New York Fire Department, are both million-dollar sales agents in the Myrtle Beach, South Carolina area. Carol and her husband, Rob, can be reached at 914-261-6681. That's 914-261-6681. Or you can email her at carolwaterssellsmb at gmail.com. Carol Waters sells MB at gmail.com. One of her customers was quoted as she always goes the extra mile. Joe Murray, attorney at law. We have the pleasure of Joe uh, with us today. And uh, have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Or do you just need a victim's advocate? Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. That's jmurray-law.com. His telephone number, which everybody should put it in their phone number, uh, into their phone, is 646-838-1702. 646-838-1702. His email is joe at jmurray-law.com. Put it in your phone, folks. You never know. Well, what better commercial than having Joe right on the scene, right? All right. Absolutely. Police Coffee is an officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends. It's made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant. And our specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Our coffee is some of the best you'll find, but also helps serve an important cause, giving back to our community. 50% of our profits goes towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. To order coffee and related products from policecoffee.com, go to the website. There are over seven types of coffee to choose from. 50% of the profits go to officers' families in need. For a 10% discount, use code OTC10. That's off the cuff 10. I, you know, something I'm uh, practicing what I preach. I just ordered some police coffee. I didn't get it yet. When I get it, I'll report back to you. And I, I'm hearing from other people that have ordered it that, that that it's fantastic coffee. This is a new this is a new client right here. And uh, if you're looking for supplements, be sure to check out the products from FirstDoNutrition.com. As first responders, there are certain expectations in our performance on the job. We train hard and drill often to be able to perform at our best when duty calls. 
whether it's hoofing over 100 pounds of gear or engaging in a spontaneous foot chase, we work out like our life depends on it because it does. Two New York City firemen created this supplement line with hand-picked products that will not pop positive on any drug test for first responders. Solid pre-workout products will give you a good pump and a short-term strength boost that can help you power through your workout. Supplements that help with fat burning and weight loss and post-workout formulas that support recovery. Go to First Do Nutrition, and Do is spelled D-U-E, firstdunutrition.com. Use code off the cuff to get 10% off your order. Wow, that was a that was a handful, a mouthful reading that. You know, one of the things you about gas pipe. That's right. One of the things about gas pipe Casso, he did break the rules because he killed the sister of a guy named um, Pete Chioto. They called him Fat Pete Chioto after a hit attempt on Chioto. I don't think she died. She she was shot several times, but she was she didn't die. I, that's what I believe. Well, he still broke the rules. He was not oh, supposed absolutely. to kill, right? Yeah, he couldn't get a fat Pete. So what he did was he knew where her sister lived, and he sent the hit team there, and they they laid in wait in the van, and they opened up on her. I think she was hit several times, but she survived. But he was already cooperating at that point. And again, like you said, he broke the rules. You know, they, they were breaking the rules. If you watch The Sopranos, you see how much the rules were uh, continually broken. You know, and they're always broken. Pretty uh, yeah, true to life. Um, you know, Ch Chick Eastwater in the chat says, "When Bill goes live at three a.m., we'll know he's been drinking too much police coffee." Good joke, <laughs> Chickie Swatter. <laughs> right, I won't be able to sleep. I won't be able to sleep. It, it may happen. Up. That may happen. I like that guy. Chickie Swatter, he's good. God bless him. He's, he's smart. He's on the ball. That may happen. You know, Joe, I just you want to go back say. real quick to this thing that I, I mentioned about, you know, is it predetermined? Are they going to be – in my practice, I put so much effort into connecting with my clients. I, I – I swear they're all my friends at, at, at some point we, we get so close, even after the case, I keep in touch with them and I try to, so I'm really trying to have that impact. Now I know there are some of them that they're just going to do what they're going to do, but what do you think? I mean, in a circumstance like that, do you think there's a chance somebody who maybe gets his first, you know, uh, arrest, it's organized crime related, maybe it's an assault or something. Can you pull somebody out of that, or is it just too overpowering? Well, I think that uh, you made a, a tremendous point because you you said that you develop a friendship and relationship with some of your clients. Obviously, there's some that are beyond redemption. They're going to do what they're going to do. I get that. But what you're talking about, specifically Tommy Dades, who had a million informants, he developed relationships with some of them. There are some that... You know, you couldn't you couldn't get food at them. I mean, I think Anthony Cas Gaspipe Queso was a complete and total madman. And when he tried to cooperate, he eventually got caught in lies and stuff like that. And they ripped up his cooperation agreement and they sent him to jail. But uh, you make a great point. Tommy is going to be on Tommy Dades, who it was like an is not like he is an organized crime expert. He's going to be on Jimmy Calandria's show at 4 p.m. today. It's going to be live. And Tommy arrested Jimmy put him in jail and he turned his life around or, you know, let's see. I mean, he's still a young man. He's got a long way to go, but he's trying to redeem his life and, and go in the right direction. And he's doing a podcast and he talks about uh, the different things. And I think there's a general message with all of that is that they're people, they could be uh, likable. 
when we spoke with Sammy the Bull recently, we did a, a Zoom call with him. He had a way about him. I mean, you know, he was uh, a made member of organized crime. He was the underboss at one point. You know, he's got a lot of uh, notches in his belt, so to speak. But he had a, a you know, he had an appeal about him that he was uh, kind of a friendly guy, and and he joked around a little bit. And uh, I know it's a little bit hard to to comprehend that you could actually be you know, in a conversation with someone like that, but, uh, he's a person, he, he's, he's got his own personality. I mean, the things he did in life, uh, you know, he, he's been given a second chance and he's doing the stuff. And so long as the guy doesn't involve himself in criminal activity, I think that, you know, uh, I could be in a conversation with the guy. I could be in a podcast with the guy and not violate my own code of ethics. You know, my own uh, integrity is still intact, you know? So, uh, yeah, what, what do you think, Bill? When we spoke with him, what did you get from your uh, your impression? Well, you know something. The only thing you you worry about, and not even worry about, but you know, people will criticize you for sort of uh, putting a mobster on a pedestal, like he's this famous person, and he has great stories, and we want to talk to him about his stories and about his life. We're not, you know, condoning the life that he lived. We were on the other side of the fence. We were law and order. And if it was necessary, and we ran across them in our law enforcement uh, careers, we would have locked them up. Of course. You know? And, you know, there's good guys and there's bad guys. And every time a good guy meets a bad guy in the law enforcement realm, you know, sometimes there's an arrest to be made and a prosecution. So we're not glorifying his life, his career, but he has great stories. Should, should Hollywood not make movies about criminals because they're, that glorifying the criminal's career. No, but that's what sells. People want to hear about this stuff. And that's why we're covering it on a podcast, not glorifying. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, I've even had people say, Oh, you guys are law enforcement. It's horrible that you're doing. No, it's not. You know, something, who do you think we spent most of our time with during our police careers? Criminals. <laughs> that's because, you know, that, that was our business. <laughs> and Joe Murray, right. Are you, are you, should you be sent to hell or purgatory? Because you're representing criminals right now? Yeah. And, and I got to tell you, I'm really frustrated because, you know, I, I put so much effort. And when I hear about somebody get rearrested, it just takes the wind out of my sails up because I try so hard to, you know, they, they're enamored by me and my story and the thing that happened and I got arrested. And so I try to use that in a positive way. And I'm, I'm just curious, Bill, if you don't mind, I just want to ask people if they think I'm wasting my time you know, doing this, that people are predetermined to, to be criminals, a uh, certain segment of society, or put a one in the chat if you think that there is a way to reach people and do the work that I'm doing, uh, and, and I, I, I will get good results. I'm just curious because I, I know that a lot of people, especially in the comments, I hear people talking, criminal history is the best predictor of future conduct, and yeah, that is true, you know, if you have a uh, a developed history, but a first, second arrest, maybe even a third. Can you make somebody turn the corner, or am I wasting my time? That's well, that's Joe. I'm seeing, I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of ones in the chat. So they obviously think that uh, people can turn their lives around, and you know, uh, redemption is the word, right? You can yeah. redeem yourself. But we Joe, also have definitely. To keep uh, I'm sorry, Bill. There's definitely a uh, a need for defense attorneys in law enforcement to work with law enforcement. Like, uh, obviously, I never took offense to 
a defense attorney doing the, the right thing with the criminal justice system, trying to defend their client. And we almost had like a friendly relationship at times. There were, there was a couple of attorneys that try to pull some underhanded stuff. And I talked about it before and, you know, follow me into the bathroom and ask me questions about what I just testified to or whatever. But uh, obviously you're not that type of guy. And if you have a person that's going to cooperate, he can't cooperate without an attorney. So there's definitely a, uh, uh, a need for a good defense attorney, uh, you know, in law enforcement to work along with. And, you know, I mean, even on cop murder cases, the, the attorneys, they, they don't, as long as they don't cross a line, an ethical line, and they try to defend their, their client, I think at the end of the day, we can shake hands at whatever the outcome is and, you know, move forward. And, and that's just a, a, a little plug for defense attorneys because, yeah. you know, I, I have a handful of attorneys that I'm very close with. And obviously, you're one of them, Joe. And I have a lot of respect for you and, and, you. and your profession. And it's not easy. It's ob obvious when you, you know, you were a cop for a lot of years, and then you became a lawyer. And when you spit out some of the things that you talk about right off the cuff with regard to a person's rights or the the, the legality of things, and you're, you you always hit the nail right on the head. You're you're very knowledgeable about that. And obviously, you took law as seriously as you did police work as, as well as I did. I always took my police work serious. And to this day, you know, I didn't go on the job for the money and the benefits. I mean, that was all, um, you know, it was a great benefit, but I really went into it because I wanted to be in law enforcement, you know, and, and I could yeah. see you're passionate about your work. So uh, yeah. a little plug but, for you there, Even as a police you know, officer, I, I never, not knocking Bill Cannon, I never took a promotional exam. I love to be in a cop. But let me ask you something, because this is something I felt even as a cop. When you're investigating a case, like I'll give you an example. I had this, uh, it was a GLA. We get him, we talk to the guy, and I'm, I'm questioning him. I bring him down to the DA's office, and I told the DA, I said, I know I could crack this guy. This was a tag job on the motor. I think there's a whole operation. So I bring him up. He was a predicate felon. He was in trouble anyway, uh, you know, mandatory jail, uh, prison. So I got him in. And it was a whole long investigation. I had to call people and talk to witnesses. And I confronted him with the facts. And he just gave it up. And he gave it up like, you know, the whole hook, line, and sinker. He has the shop. This is where it is. It turned out this was a Manhattan case. And it was a Brooklyn uh, chop shop. So the Manhattan DA, DA didn't really care about it and didn't care to even give him any, you know, like consideration in reducing his sentence at all. And I kind of felt bad for that, you know, like... I always felt bad for the ones I was able to get an admission or confession from because they're going to get a worse sentence now because I've got them dead to rights. And the guys that come in and lawyer up and, and shut up and don't say a word, they're going to get the plea bargain. And it always bothered me as a cop. And now as a lawyer, I have the same concern. You know, I always make that argument. You know, my guy came in and told you where the, the evidence was. Right. But you know, Joe, when we came on, when we came on the job, the police department didn't look into they they discouraged investigating further. You like you're you could exactly find right. That's why you know, I had to do it at the DA's office because they, yeah, they, they, they didn't they, didn't they were want, rushing they didn't me want. out of the precinct. Right. If you would have interviewed a guy, say a robbery, and he said, "Look, I know where you can get ten guns," and then you go tell the desk officer, he'd be like, "Ah, all right," and you'd be like, "Why? Yeah. What do you mean?" Uh, getting a warrant back when I came on, they didn't want you to do that. It was like too much work. Uh, well, you don't want to. How do you know he's telling the truth? Like they would discourage you at every turn. And then at the advent of Comstat, 
where all these precinct CEOs were trying to use all of that stuff to get themselves promoted. That was like big stuff. Oh, last yeah. month, uh, police officer Murray came in with a GLA column and a guy told us where we could get 10 guns. Officer Murray swore before a judge we got a warrant. We hit this location and recovered 10 guns. Right. Now the commanding officer of your precinct looks like a superstar and, you know, they gave you an EPD and you were happy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Well, I got a commander's day, you know, like I yeah, did you got that a commander's day and, and, yeah, and the, the, your CEO got promoted from captain to deputy inspector yeah. and got transferred on your, on your, on your work. But that's the yeah. way it was back then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just want yeah, to get back to the book for one second. Yeah, sorry. Another another thing that we found out was that um, Jimmy Heidel was delivered to gas pipe queso uh, by Ippolito and Caracappa. So in essence, they delivered this guy up to be murdered. So tortured another and, and tortured and murdered. There's another case that they very well, if it was ever prosecuted. They could have been accomplices to to that murder because they knew they were delivering a guy. What did they think his sentence was going to be? You yeah, know, right. he tried to kill gas pipe queso. Of course, he was going to get killed. And they delivered. And this is that's the case that ultimately led to the mafia cops being charged. You, you know, Bill, there was uh, there was another egregious thing that took place with the whole Mafia Cops case. And Tommy started to talk about it. And I made a little comment about it. And I just want to make it a little clearer. Um, there was I just want to show their picture again. These two gentlemen right here. Uh, that's Impolito and Caracappa. That's from the book Friends of the Family. Um, Caracappa was contacted through Burton Kaplan that they they had a name from when Gas Pipe Queso uh, tortured and killed Jimmy Heidel. He gave up a name and the name was Nicky Guido. So what he did was he asked through Kaplan if they could come up with a name, uh, you know, an address, a location of a Nicky Guido. So Caracappa runs, he does a group search on the name Nicky Guido and, and they knew that he came from somewhere downtown Brooklyn and, and he comes up with a Nicky Guido that came from like the Prospect Heights area and on Christmas Day, the, the information was given over to uh, from Caracappa through Kaplan to Casso, and the information was given, and he sent the hit team to uh, to the location of this Nicky Guido that had nothing to do with organized crime. He was completely innocent. And on Christmas Day, this 18-year-old kid was showing his uncle his brand-new red car. And the red car is important because it was also um, told and given over that the, the Nicky Guido that they found, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the real Nicky Guido owned a red car. So they knew he had a red car, but th this was the wrong one. Long story short, he had a red car. He's showing it to his uncle. They gun him down in cold blood on Christmas Day, completely innocent. Now, the reason that that's important, and I stress this, it's not going to be any consolation to Nicky Guido's family, but he didn't die in vain. And what I mean by that is this. When the whole case was being investigated, the FBI looked at it through Casso. When Casso lied, they tore up his agreement. The case went cold. Tommy Dades, Joe Ponzi, Mike Vecchione picked up on it. Tommy Dades went and got all the FBI files that they had from Gas Pipe Casos 
302s. 302s are the reports, the follow-ups that the FBI does. So they took all of that information. It was on a, so much, it was on a hand truck. They went through everything and they started to put together all the pieces. So Dades knew that if there was a, a, a person that ran this, there would be a, 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 a there would be a copy of it. And there would be, if it was done with a computer, there would be an address of who was it that ran it. Dades found the actual copy that Kara Kappa, when he ran the group search. So that was one thing. The second thing was they tried to flip Burton Kaplan to become an informant and he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. Well, this one particular time, I think it was the third time that Joe Ponzi had gone up to jail because he was in jail on a marijuana charge. They gave him like 19 years on a marijuana charge and he got him to cooperate by bringing up Nicky Guido. He was getting up to walk out of the room. He said, I talked to you guys a million times. I'm not going to cooperate. Blah, blah, blah. You don't even know what you're talking about. So Joe Ponzi says to him, tell me what I'm talking about. Tell me, tell me. And he's walking out of the room and he says, he's calling the, the corrections officer to bring him back to his cell. He says, tell me about Nicky Guido. And Burton Kaplan stops in his tracks and turns and says, you know, that never stood right with me. He knew the kid was innocent. He wind up sitting down and Joe debriefed him over many days and, and hours. And he became informed because of that innocent kid being killed. I mean, he felt terrible that he was the go between that passed the information and they got an innocent kid killed amongst, you know, they're, they're implicated in as many as 14 murders. Uh, they were only charged with eight in the federal indictment and they were convicted on all 79 counts of that, uh, that Rico statute. So, uh, you know, Phil, one of the things that uh, you, you, that people need to understand, and we know it in law enforcement, is that you have access to top secret information that could cause someone their life or can blow a major investigation. And the integrity of that information is is really tough sometimes to protect. For example, now, the NYPD for the last, I guess, 15 years has something called a computerized DD5 system which is all the complaint follow-ups that the detectives type up, they have, they're all connected. So if, you, if you're searching, say, for an Eddie Lino, let's just use that name for an example, and you run it in the computer, you could find on the DD5 system, you could say, hey, there's someone in the 6-0 squad looking for that same guy. So now you, you contact the detective from the 6-0 squad because it came up in the DD5 search and he could say, yeah, I have this case on him. Voila, that never happened before that system was available. But in the same vein, you could say you could have a family member that's a criminal. And you could find out by running your own family's name, person's name in the system that, oh, shit, these detectives in, uh, in the Bronx have a case on my brother. So it's a, And there is some checks and balances that everyone that signs in to the case, to search that case, their name is at the bottom. So the right. system is as good as the integrity of the system. So if some lieutenant, an, uh, an ICO, uh, integrity control officer, thinks it's a little strange that so-and-so looked at this case and the guy happens to have the same last name as him, that is one of the checks and balances. But just think of how dangerous that could be say on a murder case or on a real capital case that someone investigation, of course, a, a, exactly. So the in integrity of that, like we never liked it when I was in the detective squad, we didn't like it that our commanding officer of the precinct 
had access to the detectives DD5s cuz now he would like get involved in their cases like say why is this happening wait, wait it's not your business right this is the squad's business why are you meddling in this shit but the police department encouraged that and i don't know how that's worked out to this day cuz i haven't obviously been on the job in almost 10 years but i foresaw a problem in that system in the integrity of who had access to it you know um Tommy Dades and Joe Ponzi, they had the two most important parts of bringing down the mob cops. One was flipping Bert Kaplan, obviously, because he corroborated all the stuff that the FBI had already worked on and corroborated the stories of all the informants and stuff. And the other thing was Tommy finding that prick. Now, when there was a record made of Caracappa running that name, and they found the record. That was just unbelievable. And what he did was he claimed he put a case number. He attached a case number that had to do with some some uh, Spanish gang member or something to that effect. But he never did a DD5, which would be a report saying this is why I ran this name. So he attached a, a case number. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, a, a case number to it, which came back to this uh, Spanish gang member. But he never put the reason why he was running Nikki Guido's name. So those two things, that was, you know, they were investigating this thing and they needed to have something really concrete and solid to bring these guys down. You had all these informants giving information. They knew a lot of what was going on, but those two things were very intricate. And I'm sure we're going to have Tommy and Joe on sometime in a few. Right now, Joe's going through some health issues, but in the future, they'll be able to give exactness of how that went down with regard to when Kaplan turned and, 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 you know, stopped dead in his tracks, when Joe threw that out there and said, tell me about Nicky Guido in, in a forceful way. And he stopped and, and he turned around, you know, and then Tommy going in the basement of, of, uh, you know, of the, uh, uh, the major case squad, whatever precinct they were in and finding that printout that was so important. And it took, you know, the, the, the persistence, to, to look for these things and to do these things. I mean, Kaplan was interviewed three and four times by FBI agents, by NYPD detectives, by the FBI. And Joe Ponzi, who was a bureau chief in the Brooklyn DA's office, he was the chief investigator. It took him. And it was funny because it's what Joe said earlier. He had developed a little bit of a rapport with him over time. He actually, the day that he got him to cooperate there was another gentleman, I think he was an FBI agent, former NYPD that was working for the, for the Justice Department. And he says, oh, I don't even want to talk to you. I like him. I'll talk to him. And he said, he said, I'll step out of the room. He went out of the room and Joe and him started to talk. And he basically was telling him, I'm not going to roll over. I'm not going to cooperate. But he had a, a little bit of a rapport that Joe made because Joe has a great personality. He was actually on the perfect murder too that we all we all met on, and he did uh, he did a terrific job on that show. And but his his uh, he's very articulate. His his great personality. He made that little connection, and when he threw that out there at that moment. That was such a pivotal part of uh, the investigation, as well as Tommy finding that printout. And that's what really got the ball rolling. And it went from that murder to all the other murders and uh, brought these two, uh, these two bad detectives down. You know, Joe, I just wanted to comment because you got to be dealing with the other side of the fence with this. And we talk about the integrity of an investigation. You may offer up your client to, to plead and, he had uh, someone that decides to plead and cut a deal 
has to also trust that the integrity of the system that they're pleading to has to be trustworthy. You want, want to comment about that? Yeah, that's an important point. And I, I generally do not like cooperators or, or you know, government informants. It destroys your practice because they're now cooperating about several other defendants. So when people come to you and now want to hire you, you're conflicted. You're conflicted because you have a client who's already ratting on them. You can't now represent the person who's being ratted on. It's a nightmare to deal with cooperators. And I tell my clients from the beginning, you know, I, I tell them I will represent you and defend you and do the best I can for you. I don't like cooperation. If you're thinking about cooperating, don't hire me. I don't want to deal with cooperators because it's a nightmare for your practice. I'm a solo practitioner. So, you know, if, if you if you had uh, other attorneys and, and you could build what they call the Chinese wall and, and try to, you know, avoid that conflict, but there's no way as a solo attorney that I could ever defend someone who's been implicated by my client. And, you know, it doesn't have to be at the same time. It could be down the road. It's an absolute nightmare. So whenever possible, I try to, or tell them, even if they're considering it, I have no problem recusing myself and you can, you know, find somebody else. I just don't deal with cooperators. It, it, it's an absolute horrible situation. And I don't like the government. You know, the, the government is not the most ethical body. I mean, you. I looked at this uh, appeal that went on. They reversed this conviction. They reversed the conviction on the main enterprise, uh, you know, the racketeering charge. Mind you, the government filed several superseding uh, indictments because they kept changing the facts to try to fit that. They had a big problem with the five-year statute of limitations. I don't understand why they were they were putting the murders in as the racketeering. Murder has no statute of limitation. They could have charged it separately and independently, but they wanted it as part of this racketeering thing. So there were a lot of problems, and the government. You know, you know, Joe. I, th I think that I think that may have been a pissing contest between the Brooklyn DA's office and the FBI, because the Brooklyn DA's office had the murders, and they were willing to go forward with that, but the FBI. You know, they had the basketball. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's all yeah. ball and all court, and sure. we're going to go I, with this. From, and they from, spend from what I know, from what I know about it, they did want to go federally because the federal statutes you you can get the RICO in on it. You know, and, yeah. and like you said, having the murders, they could have went that route because there's no statute of limitation on murder. But they wanted to go into federal court because you know, federal court the the uh, the sentences are always higher. You have the RICO that you could put, and that's how they wound up putting together. When we have Tommy on again, we can get a little more specific about it. But they contacted the DEA, and they got uh, a drug thing going where uh, Impolito, so somebody in his family, or Impolito somehow or another had his hands in some drug business, and that's how they kept the. Uh, they were able to overcome that that statute of limitation, that five year statute of limitation, but. Uh, and I but guess, that, you know, again, that goes back to the indictment. Originally, they indicted him as the racketeering. Uh, the enterprise was La Cosa Nostra, LCN. That was the enterprise. Right. But that drug case was not La Cosa Nostra. That was their own right. criminal enterprise right, that they right, were right. running. So they had to keep yeah. changing that to make that fit, which, yeah. you know, I don't like that. You're the U.S. government. 
here's the other thing. I was looking at this appeal, and Philly, you uh, you know, you brought up the the uh, Guido thing. I'm reading this right from the appeal. Jeremy Weinstein wrote this decision. I believe he was the trial judge in that case. Am I am I right about that? I think I'm Weinstein was the judge. So it, I, it starts here. Having killed Heidel, Casso asked Kaplan. Oh shoot! What is this now? Hold on. Casso asked Kaplan if he could get him more information on Nicholas Guido, another of the names included in the packet Santoro had given to Kaplan. Kaplan talked to Santoro, who said that Ippolito could do it, but that he wanted $4,000 for the job. Because he thought the request was greedy, Casso refused the deal, obtaining information on Guido from another source. On December 25th, 1986, on orders from Casso, a man named Nicholas Guido was killed outside of his house. The Nicholas Guido who was killed was not, however, the Nicholas Guido who had helped carry out the attempt on Casso's life. He was an innocent 25-year-old with no connection to organized crime. Kaplan testified, I'm just emphasizing that, Kaplan testified that he later had a conversation with Eppolito about Guido's murder, during, the, during which Eppolito told him that if Casso had chosen to pay the $4,000, he would have gotten the right Nicholas Guido. Now, let me just say on that, I'm sure these dirty cops, thinking that they were going to try to make some money, ran all these names, had all this information. So that's why Tommy Dates found it, but he refused to pay for it so they didn't give it to him, and they got it from another source. I'm not trying to, you know, uh, remove his culpability because he did it and intended to do it and should be convicted of it, but he didn't complete it, according to Jeremy Weinstein, who was, I believe, the trial judge. So that's right. really interesting. Well, th there's a part of it that I wish Tommy was on with us because he could really explain a little better. Casso didn't trust the, the mob cops. He didn't want to ever meet them. He had very little trust in them. And they went through Burton Kaplan, like you said, when they asked the sexual man, he's like, nah, I can find it on my own. So he did find out that the, the real Nicky Guido had a red car. He found that out through his, his inner circle, I guess. But uh, there was that printout and I believe the information, we'd have to really have Dades or Joe Ponzi in on the uh, on the conversation to know if it, in fact, was given over to him. But, yes, I do remember there was that part about uh, that they, they asked for more money, and he said, now I'll do it on my own. I don't think he trusted them. There was no he, – he never trusted them. He thought that – well, if they – and he was quoted as saying this. Well, if these guys turned on the NYPD, what's going to make make them not turn on me? So he he never really trusted them. Why didn't they have that same conversation? Here are two guys that really didn't know each other who got together and somehow, I mean, we've all sat in a radio call with somebody on a slow day. You're bullshitting. You're talking about this and that. How do you get to, hey, let's do some hits for the mob. But then why aren't they making the connection? Okay. And when they get arrested and want to give us up, you know, the government would love that. And that's gold to them. Why would they think they would never give up? I mean, these cops are not, unless they were members of organized crime, they're not members of organized crime. If they were to give up their information, that's that's no foul or sin, uh, I believe. 
You know, well, you know, what? Joe. One of the one of the things were they were retired. I think for like six years before they brought this case. So they were what? retired what? and no, living I in mean, Las they're, Vegas. They're criminals, and yeah, you know, absolutely. All... Listen, I got to tell you something about. Him. I'm going to tell you something about Impolito. I didn't know Karen Cap. I might have seen him once or twice, but I did know Impolito. Now I am sure that they didn't start out committing contract murders. They started out with smaller stuff. And in my neighborhood growing up, I, I, I know that Impolito was, I found this out afterwards that he was for sale. What I mean by that is if you had a problem, you went to him and he tried to straighten it out. And I know that uh, he had a, a, a friend that had a son that was a car dealer. And this guy used to go around trying to sell tag jobs and said, Oh, I have Impolito behind me. And, and there's different stories. So my point is this, that's going back to way before any of these murders were committed. This is like in the early eighties. It was known on the street that Impolito was for sale. He was corrupt from that period of time. So I think what happened is a little at a time they, he, maybe he asked, Kara Kappa to run somebody in the organized crime world since he was working in the major case squad and had access to organized crime files. He actually put together his own database of uh, organized crime members and different stuff like that. I wish Joe Ponzi was on. He really has all the details on that. But you know, Phil, even, is- Phil, even in this book, The Mafia Cop, if you read if you read some of the crap that he said that he would do, like he would go to the domestic violence case lock up the husband and come back later to have sex with the wife. I mean, he's just a dirt bag. He was known you know for that. I mean? You're right. He was known for yeah. that. He was a dirt I mean, bag. come on. And he comes that does that. It was really on the street. In, in my neighborhood growing up in Gravesend and in the surrounding area where the 6-2 is, where he worked out of the 6-2 squad for a bit, it was known. The bad guys in the street knew Louis was for sale. That's the point I'm trying to make. Now, what was he for sale for? For small things, for minor things, for major things? I don't really know exactly, but this one particular car dealer, I know that he was friends with the mother or the father or some family member. You know, he would say, oh, I could sell tag jobs and I got Louie behind me, you know. So those are the things that, you know, maybe to keep the auto squad away or something to that effect. So I think it probably was a gradual thing. He probably reached out to Caracappa and you know, uh, uh, asked him, queried him for information on mob stuff. He was able to get it because maybe, uh, you know, the computers, there was really no uh, big uh, computer database in the squads back then that you could just go into it, get information. But Caracappa was actually compiling information and making his own database. So he may have supplied some of the information, whatever it was. So it was probably a gradual thing where it led up to the murders. And then, you know, once you start getting the big money, somebody's putting you on the payroll because Castro had them on the payroll for a certain amount of money every month. You know, you want more and more. And and maybe uh, somebody said, yeah, they could kill this guy. And they were given the, the, the you know, they were given the job to do it, the green light. And they did it. Uh, I guess at some point they felt like they were invulnerable and they could just get away with ever they wanted to because they were hiding behind the shield. You know, look, dirty cops feel that way. Michael, uh, what's his name? Uh, Michael, Michael Dowd, that dirtbag from the 7-5, who happens to be also making the rounds of the podcast now. Yeah. I wouldn't, I would never have that guy on, you know, I, I just, you watch the documentary, the seven five where he actually starts crying when the transit cop Venable was murdered by the same drug dealers that Dowd was taking money from. And then Dowd gets all teary eyed and I threw his body in the radio car and drove him to the hot. What nonsense, you know, I was yeah, like, yeah. you stopped being a cop. Once you started taking money, don't try to be a cop now. Because another yeah. cop got shot. Yeah. You know, it was disgusting. Listen, guys, yeah. we're at uh, like almost an hour and 15 minutes. Let, let me I make one got, more point. Oh, let me make one more point. I'll give you a chance. I just got to, okay. I got to talk about this. 
We're, we're coming out with merchandise. It should be out next week. Josh keeps giving me talk about the merchandise. We're going to have coffee cups, police off the cuff, dipped in butter. We're going to have those big metal cups. I forget what they're called, but they're also for coffee. We're going to have shirts. We're going to have all kinds of merchandise. So we'll be on the uh, you know the YouTube page. And Josh has worked so hard, hard on this. Josh is our producer who actually lives in California. I was turned on to Josh by Duty Ron, and he works for Duty Ron. He's an unbelievable guy. I have Mike uh, Cologne, MC's Audio. He actually gave the name of the cop, Robert Venable. Yeah, he was the one that was murdered, and the Dowd in the 7-5 documentary is crying that he, he put him in his radio car and took him to the hospital. I don't even believe that, but Dowd, if you're listening, you, you don't get to be a cop after you were a dirty prick. And then, you know, because another cop was killed. Um, Absolutely. Uh, someone stays on the case says, I'll take a rack shirt. Yeah. I think we have a shirt that says polish my rack. But I oh, said no. he, has to, yeah, yeah, he has to sort of like indicate what we're talking about because we don't want to get accused of being yeah. sexist. I, you know, I, I, that, 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 right, that, that may be taken the wrong way. So I, I told Josh, you better have the picture of the medals uh, to say polish my rack <laughs> or else that might not go over too well and we'll get people – We'll get people opting out, saying, I don't want to be on this channel anymore. You guys are pigs, you know? <laughs> Come on, have a little sense of humor. Relax. Polish right. my rack. Relax. Take right. it the way you want it. <laughs> funny. One point yeah, I wanted to make, though, was... Okay, uh, I, go. Go. I wanted to make a point about Casso. Now, again, we were talking about them leading up to it. He didn't trust them. When he or, or whoever gave the order to kill people and they knew it was done, they read it in the paper, they knew it wasn't BS, he's not stupid, Castle. So now maybe the graduation where he could trust them began, you know. And uh, I have a question for, for Joe. My brother, who's a big fan of the show, Nick G, he's in the comments. He asked, what CFS you worked at, Joe, because he thinks he met you in JFK. My brother worked in in, uh, in the airport for almost 40 years, over 30 years. No way. So, oh, yeah. I worked first. My first job was a good friend of mine, uh, Billy Sharkey, who was a pro fighter, Howard Beach guy, uh, was partners with my uncle. And uh, it was the company was called DMBS, Dan Murray, Mike Balbo, and Bill Sharkey. It was just weird how their, their initials worked out. So I worked for them. They had skids. They had a skid business, you know, the, the pallets. And I would repair them right. and fix them right out of high school. Then I worked for the GO warehouse doing uh, like all the international air freight would come in. They would do the inspections, the customs guys. Then I worked for Sarcona, Joe Sarcona, uh, Gazelle, and then Profit. My uncle Jimmy worked for Profit. My uncle Danny worked for Highs uh, and then had his own company. Um, and my uncle Neil worked in Swiss Air, so I had family all over the airport. And I, think I know Frank Joe Sarcone is a familiar name with my brother. No wonder yeah. there was so much. No wonder there was so much missing swag. <laughs> that is the truth. Oh my god, the GL warehouse was amazing. But uh, yeah, I think uh, Frankie was working for a company called Frank and Tony. So you, your cousin may know that company. It's, as well. it's my brother, Nick. Yeah. Uh, he, he's got a few friends still there and he went through that whole era with all the stuff missing and stuff. But uh, yeah. he was actually a boss for a freight company. He, he retired from Bax Global, I believe. And uh, yeah, he, uh, he was a customs broker. So he started out yeah. as a driver for uh world courier. And, uh, but he said, he said, he sent me a message saying he thinks he met you. Yeah, could be, you know, a friend of mine from high school had a, uh, like a coffee shop, uh, 
Steve Valente. He was like 6'10". He was a huge, huge guy. And uh, <coughs> excuse me. But we all would go to the same places, the same stops, and you would know everybody. And I just didn't recognize Frankie. I don't know who this guy was. And it was just so funny because collectively everyone online, you know, when I was like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, and they were like, no, no. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, okay, all right. You, know. you were probably and ready to give him a right hook. And uh... <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I didn't. Thank God you didn't. That's yeah. You know, I, you know, he, I, he'd not have ever had a legal career if you would hit that guy. <laughs> I, I was bouncing at a, a bar in Long Beach. And Billy, I work with Billy Sharkey, and uh, you know, so I, I was in shape, and I didn't give a shit. I got into fights out there. The airport was no joke. You know, like you would get into little scuffles here and there. But I was so glad that this one never went forward. <laughs> My brother just texted me. He said he worked at AEI and Circle. Yeah. Oh, AIC was. Uh, I worked. Uh, Air Freight International International Air Freight Container Station, IAC. I worked there. Tony Carbone, uh, Stephen Carbone. I work with them. All right. Yeah. So, we guys, we're going to – I'm sure we ran into each other. I just want to list – tomorrow night we have a, a special guest, uh, um, Cliff Moylan, who actually I met uh, taking a comedy class. He's an actor. He was the guy in Patriot's Day uh, – that got to say they shot it out with the Zarnayev brothers, and he was like, "Welcome to uh, Watertown, MFR," you know, and that was his greatest line in that movie. And uh, he's a really good actor. He's been in a tons of stuff. He's going to be on uh, tomorrow night. He's uh, he's Irish. He's from Boston, Massachusetts, and it should be it should be a great show. I, I don't want to let everyone know guests that we were working on getting until we get a commitment. I don't like to say so and so's coming on. But once I get the dates and people confirm dates, uh, just uh, just let it be known we got, we got some amazing guests in the woodwork hanging out on the uh, on the outskirts now that haven't told 100% committed till I get a date. Once I get a commitment, I'll let all you guys know. Uh, Philly, final words. Final words. I just want to give a plug to uh, Mike Cologne, Mike the New Haven. Uh, I did his show a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to try and do another one real soon. There was a couple of, I was in a very, very, I was inspired to become a cop by the movie, The French Connection. And, uh, you know, I was in a car chase that was almost as crazy as that. Obviously not quite as crazy as uh, that chase, but I was in something like that. So I want to talk about that. Uh, Bill, you made a point earlier. We're talking about mob stuff now. I mean, if you look at the interest in organized crime in the mob over in the UK, the United States, everywhere. Godfather one, Godfather two, Godfather three, Goodfellas, Donnie Brasco, and I could keep going. Uh, the other one, Casino, uh, Bronx Tale. These are uh, movies that had tremendous interest, Academy Awards and everything. So, again, we're going to try to bring some of that. Uh, we'll get the law enforcement perspective from us, our professional uh, opinions. We'll have some great conversation with the other side. We'll get some of the stuff that, uh, you know, they're going to be respectful, obviously. They're not going to say anything stupid or anything like that. And we'll get some uh, some good content going going forward. Although Sammy did call all three of us flatfoots. That he did. Wait till we get him on the show. Yeah. <laughs> when, when, when I when I told him, I says we're going to add Tommy Dades into the into the Zoom call. He goes, Yeah, what's one more flatfoot? I said, Yeah, yeah. So that's the kind of uh, um, you know banter that goes on, I guess. But uh, Joe, but, Joe, final last words, last words yeah, to I, the I, attorney. I, 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 what Phil was saying, Mike 
Cologne is amazing. I'm so glad that you have him working for you. He has that show, MC's Audio. He had me on there for two hours. I was talking to Mike. I felt so bad because he's such a great interviewer and he's so he's nice. Gonna be a, he's he's going to be a star, that kid. I, I, I can't believe I mean, he really outstanding. And we went for two hours on my career and all that stuff. And I saw Phil's that was excellent. So uh, I want to give a big plug to him, and people should check out his interviews. He has amazing guests, not just Joe Murray and Phil Gromoli. He has really, really <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mike yeah. Lubica on there, you know? So he, We could say I, we knew him when, you know? Yeah, that's right. that's, that's right. I was just going to say, you know, this guy is on his way. Oh, he, and anyone, uh, yeah, they should really check out his thing, MC's audience. Uh, you know, Mike Victoria Holden. Victoria's Holdsworth says Joe is a better looking Paul Hollywood. I don't want to watch Joe's head grow as I'm watching it on the screen. I don't know why I read. I don't know why I read these comments. You know. <laughs> anyway, if folks, we I get a lot of positive a- comments. We've been doing okay in the comments. That's, that's for positive. sure. You yeah. know, folks, I just want to uh, thank everyone for listening today. You know, this is a uh, Sunday afternoon show at two o'clock that we sort of do together at the last minute, but. You get three cops together. We can talk for hours. And we hope that uh, you guys enjoyed it. If you're not subscribed, please go on our uh, YouTube, hit the subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. And again, as we said, we have memberships now. We're going to be having merch coming out next week. And I know it's a little controversial that uh, polish my rack shirt. I'm going to have to, uh, I'm going to have to rethink that one. I have Josh do what I said have uh, the medals uh, and it's above the medals they polish my rack so it's not that uh, you know risque you know Tom, Tommy Bates and uh, and uh, Jimmy Calandra at 4 p.m. today uh, Jimmy Calandria Bat Beach Story check it out I just put it in the chat that's the link in the chat right there at 4 o'clock You're- today Tommy Dades right there I just put it up so folks uh, I'm Bill Cannon from Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories on behalf of Phil Grimaldi Attorney Joe Murray, have a great day. Stay safe, everyone.